Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. This is one of over a thousand programs we've done since the pandemic began. Uh, This is another live stream uh, program, and we're hoping that you've enjoyed quite a few of them. And if you came to us early, you probably saw our earlier live stream uh, with Fergus Bordovic, who is here again with another book. Um, His earlier book was Congress at War. If you want to see that one from the time period before, you can look it up on the Internet. But today we're here to talk about his new book, Clan War. Uh, It's how President Grant conducted his war against the Ku Klux Klan. And it takes the time period from Abraham Lincoln's assassination until the Tilden Hayes election and gives a lot of details about how Reconstruction went and how it didn't go. Um, and how the Ku Klux Klan reacted to it. So, first of all, welcome, uh, Fergus, to back to the Commonwealth Club. It's nice to have you here. And well, hello, George. Uh, thanks. You, thank you very much for having me. It's it's nice to be back, even with that we're doing this electronically. Yeah. And uh, one thanks to uh, the Bernard Osher Foundation, which supports our Good Lit uh, series, which this is a part of. So, let's start with. This idea, you, you, you did Congress at war, and now you did this period of time after uh, that, and you have the characters, you have the details, and it, as any period of time, I thought I knew this period of time, um, and I've read in it, but I didn't have any uh, near the amount of detail that was needed to get a really good idea about what was happening. So first, thank you for doing the book, and, and uh, just give us, a little bit of that overview that you did in the, in the preface of, of, of what the big trends were so that people have an idea about the details we're going to go down into it with an overview. Yeah. Sure. Uh, well, as you said, this book covers basically a 12-year period from the end of the Civil War in 1865 to the 1876 Tilden Hayes election. And uh, in 1865, the Civil War has ended. The South is in chaos. Its economy, based on slavery, is in ruins, uh, in no small part because four million enslaved people, the greatest wealth of the Confederacy, are now free individuals. Um, uh, There is initially a Union occupation force in the South in 1865 and 66. Uh, The Republican Party, which won its first presidential election in 1860 with Abraham Lincoln, um, is the majority party, the controlling party uh, in the United States. Uh, and it is one, one little detail. The southern states weren't even part of the United States. They couldn't vote yet in the presidential election, right? They weren't. They were territories, right? For the first. Well, yeah. they, well that was the subject of a lot of debate and argument. The Republican radicals argued that the southern states should be returned to the status of territories and, the, and, and essentially governed by the federal government indefinitely. But fairly steadily, southerners are re-enfranchised. One, there are unionists in the south, not as many as the Republicans imagined. They're able to vote. Uh, people who were not uh, significant members of the Confederate government or Confederate military could vote in fairly uh, short order. Uh, and most importantly, uh, freed African-Americans 
who number about 4 million people, somewhat uh, less than half of those are men of voting age, can vote. And it's important to, to, to realize, as I think most people do not, uh, the 15th Amendment is passed in 1870. That'll enfranchise all uh, uh, African-Americans and all formerly disenfranchised uh, former slaves. But the states are enfranchising African-Americans from 1867 on. Mm -hmm. uh, how is that possible? It's because um, the Republican Party and, in some cases, military governors are, are making that possible. It's the authority of states to control voting laws, mm. not the federal government until 1870. This is very, very bitterly debated. But there, there you go. These, the southern states are, for this, for this period of time, or part of it, are controlled by Republicans and led often by people who are known as radical Republicans. And that's not today's radicals. It means specifically people who are uh, completely in support of... Um, extending full civil rights to African-Americans and who also support a forceful, aggressive uh, reconstruction policy that will protect this new embryonic two-party system in the South um, and will rebuild the entire South, so they hope, uh, to resemble the, the free labor economy of the North. All this is very controversial. Uh, and uh, the South, as I said, is in chaos, social chaos, economic chaos, economic depression. And as as you can imagine, there's a tremendous amount of bitterness on the parts, part of whites, former Confederates, who were defeated on the battlefield and are horrified at the prospect of their former human property, uh, their former enslaved people, actually having the power to vote, the power to govern, holding office. Um, and and advancing economically, it flies in the face of the whole uh, uh, whole ideology of uh, racism that's dominated the South. Um, uh, to try to concisely finish answering your question, mm -hmm. let's say Lincoln's assassinated in April of 1865. His vice president Andrew Johnson of Tennessee becomes president unexpectedly, of course. The selection of Johnson was Lincoln's worst mistake as president, mm -hmm. political mistake anyway. Um, he was a ticket balancer. He was not a Republican. He was not committed to Reconstruction. He was deeply racist. And his, his, his power base, insofar as he had one, rested among Southern whites. Uh, uh, there's a battle in, in Washington, a political battle, which I covered in the in the book, I go back mm -hmm. and forth between uh, politics in Washington and violence taking place in the South. But uh, Congress um, is is uh, vigorously uh, uh, in contention, political political warfare with Johnson. Congress was the more powerful branch of government at the time, mm -hmm. not the presidency. And Congress is led, as I said, by at the time by radicals who are pushing a very strong uh, uh, reconstruction policy. And in 1868, finally, Ulysses Grant, the, the uh, uh, commander of the Union armies during the war, war hero, the second George Washington, he's often called, 
is uh, elected president as a Republican and really embraces an alliance with the radicals in Congress. And this, the stage is set for this confrontation with the Klan, which has been uh, increasingly terrorizing black people and white Republicans in the South. All right. So let's get into some of the details. So let's start with in, 18, in 1865, two of the characters that played big roles, uh, President, for, for future President Grant, who, who had uh, what role? Secretary of Defense. What, what, what was his role at the time? Uh, Just he's commander that. of the commander of the army. Commander of the commander army. of the army, um, which was more powerful than than Secretary of War at the time. But uh, he, he's uh, uh, very powerful. He's charismatic. He's a celebrity and uh, um, honored by all Northerners. Yes. All right, and then there's Carl Schurz. Who, who came over after the 1848, uh, you know, idealistic democratic revolutions in Europe. And, of course, they all lost. And so a lot of people came to America. He was one of those. So it, now this is 648. It's almost 20 years later. Um, and he's a prominent person. And he, he goes and writes a report about Reconstruction the, about the same time that Grant does in, in late 1865. And Grant doesn't notice anything. And Church notes it notices, why don't you? Because uh, it's a very fascinating how that plays out over time. Yeah. Um, this, as you said, is 1865. It's the beginning of Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And Andrew Johnson, the president, dispatches both these men separately to the South on fact-finding missions. Grant, who is not a politician, and he's something of a political innocent at the time, Goes south, he's wined and dined by southern elites. Uh, he spends merely three weeks traveling around the south. The elite folks, property owners, business people say, oh, uh, uh, we're, we're, we're getting along better and better. We all believe in the Union now. The South Confederacy lost the war. We're ready for a new start. Uh, racial problem? No, we don't have any racial problems. The the, the Negroes, the word that it, they would politely use, as opposed to very impolite words, mm -hmm. um, are, are getting along fine. Uh, 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 we don't foresee any problems. Grant comes back and he reports in this vein to Andrew Johnson, which is what Johnson, uh, who's pro-Southern, basically wants to hear. Carl Schurz, fascinating individual who used to be known to all school children once upon a time, mm -hmm. is no longer all that well known. Um, but he was a European liberal, a fierce believer in democracy and Republican government. He's fled Europe uh, 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 because his life was at risk, built a career in the United States, spoke barely a word of English, but soon learned to speak it so well, he became a popular lecturer, a journalist, and a politician in English. Anyway. So, and he had been a union general during the war. Mm -hmm. So he had, he had stature. Uh, Shorts spends weeks and weeks traveling all over the South, and he talks to everyone. Nobody's whining and dining him. Mm -hmm. He talks to uh, working-class people. He talks to wealthy people. He talks to former slave owners. He talks to African-Americans. And what he discovers is, is a landscape of, of chaos and terror, and he reports that back, writing articles also for newspapers as he goes. 
This is not what Johnson wants to hear. Shorts is describing accurately what's happened. Mm -hmm. And Shorts at that time was a supporter of Reconstruction. Oh, in the course of several years, as I show in my book, mm. these two men reverse positions. Right. Grant becomes an ally of the radicals and our first civil rights president. And I'm not using that term glibly. Mm -hmm. He believed in civil rights. And Schurz allies himself increasingly with um, uh, so-called moderates and conservatives and Southerners who protest that they're being uh they're they're suffering under 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 uh reconstruction because he sees his political future as being tied to to people of that sort all right so there's two of our characters and let's talk about andrew johnson for a second well everybody remembers about andrew johnson is he got impeached you know and so the question is why did he get impeached and it's also i think uh, obfuscated by the fact that john f kennedy in his book profiles of courage gave a, a, a big shout out to the guy who, who voted the one vote that made sure he didn't get, you know, so I wanted you to, I don't think you don't mention that in your book, I don't think, but it's a big issue to, 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 to how people see Andrew Johnson. So you said just a little while ago, Congress was much stronger than the president at the time. And Congress was mad at Johnson because they told him he couldn't get rid of his, one of the secretaries, secretary of war. And 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 then he tried to anyway, and they told him no. And you can't imagine anybody telling the president he can't get rid of one member of his cabinet. So now nowadays. So why don't you talk about what what the what the bill of of, uh, you know, uh, impeachment was against Andrew Johnson and, and maybe make a comment about that act of courage on the part of the one voter. OK, hey, um, well, you summarize the um, the 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 crux of the matter pretty well there, George. Um, the, the broader context is that Johnson, as I've said a few times, doesn't support Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. uh, John, Johnson is perfectly happy to restore to the, the South uh, to, a, to a situation as close as possible as existed before the war without slavery. He is a Southerner a Southern populist who opposed slavery, like a lot of Southern populists, mm -hmm. he'd owned a couple of slaves, but he had freed them in the course of the war, but only in the course of the war. Mm -hmm. He wasn't an abolitionist. He didn't really believe in it, but he, he believed that slavery uh, was not healthy for the United States. Of course, that was true. Uh, so Congress, meanwhile, is passing one after another fairly radical uh, piece of legislation um, that step-by-step step are leading to the empowerment of, of African-Americans, former slaves. And uh, Congress is also straining against the president not to re-enfranchise former Confederates. Johnson wants former Confederates to be voting and, and entering political office. And in fact, in the chaos of this situation, we can't go too deep into the weeds, but Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, uh, was actually elected to the U.S. Senate from Georgia. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, now, he at that time was not allowed to take office because of congressional legislation. Years later, he will make it back into Congress, but mm -hmm. initially not. 
in Congress, you have um, passionate uh, abolitionists and 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 uh, people with very progressive views about society and education and economy, like Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania, a a brilliant uh, parliamentarian, brilliant po- politician who also should be known by everyone today, but he's. Uh, he was kind of scrubbed out of the American story during the whole long Jim Crow lost cause era because he was such an advocate of 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 uh, racial equality. Anyway, uh, so the larger context is one of trench warfare in, in, in Washington, D.C., between the 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 radical Congress on Capitol Hill and the embattled president down there in the White House. And part of this warfare in uh led to what you described, uh, Johnson trying to fire his Secretary of War, um, Secretary Stanton, uh, who was a radical, or aligned with the radicals at any rate, very, very close to the radicals. And Congress uh, passed a law, frankly, it doesn't make any sense, other than the the time in which it occurred, Mm, uh, denying that the president had a right to 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 fire his own cabinet members once they had been approved by Congress, mm-hmm. the, Senate, the Senate specifically, and Congress is saying that um, uh, uh, Johnson cannot fire Stanton without the Senate's consent, which of course will never be given. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this this uh, tug of war politically it was very violent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't lead to bloodshed. In Washington, but it was pretty violent politically, um, uh, caused Congress to to uh, issue articles of impeachment against Johnson uh, for allegedly uh, unconstitutionally uh, re- uh, attempting to fire Stanton, the Secretary of War. Uh, he was impeached. He was not convicted. Now. <laughs> I, I don't think anybody today would, or at least should, go to John Kennedy's book, Profiles and Courage, as a book of history. <laughs> it was a product of its time. Kennedy, for all his virtues politically, uh, I mean, people would say he wasn't very virtuous personally, but that's not what we're talking about here. Politically, uh, was educated, thoroughly educated during uh, a period when pro-Southern historians dominated the teaching of American history, including at Harvard, which uh, Kennedy attended. Uh, these are pro, pro-Southern pro historians, largely trained in the North. Uh, uh, during all school of historiography uh, that, that was ascendant, during the Jim Crow period and reflected the values of Jim Crow and that held that Reconstruction was a terrible failure. It was a disaster. Black people, former slaves, weren't ready to be freed anyway, certainly not ready to vote, and so on and so on, and accepted a Southern-oriented interpretation of, of, of the whole period. Kennedy was educated at that time, and it showed in Profiles of Courage, um, it's an artifact of Kennedy's life. It's not. It's not a book about real history. Anyway, uh, the impeachment uh, trial was hard fought. It was hard fought initially. It looked as if uh, uh, he was going to be convicted. Johnson was going to be convicted, uh, and as you said, by one vote, he was not. 
there is even to this day a debate about whether that uh, that 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 vote was was won by bribery or persuasion. Mm-hmm. I, I I think there's a the, the consensus leans towards bribery. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it it should be said that there were members uh, who who did not want to conv- who who didn't like Johnson. They didn't support him, but they really did not want to set a precedent of convicting the president, mm. especially over this really rather arcane piece of legislation. He can't fire his a member of his cabinet. Well, a lot of people didn't really believe that was that that was that was a uh, a viable piece of legislation. Mm. So it it it's not a simple it's not a simple situation. It's right. Very very good uh, members of Congress uh, voted. Uh, not to convict as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but but the end result is that Johnson is politically neutered. He's 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 been he's been uh, kneecapped mm-hmm. by this. His he he has virtually no support in the North. He hopes for a a wave of support in the South, but frankly, he isn't like there either because he was the wartime governor of Tennessee mm-hmm. and a very strong wartime governor. So Johnson is dead in the water politically mm. after this. On the other hand, he offers no leadership to Reconstruction and no leadership to confronting Ku Klux Klan terrorism. All right. So uh, before we set the, the stage of what happened from uh, Grant's point of view, um, of course, the Southern whites were saying that the uh, African-Americans were rebelling and causing chaos and and how much of that do you think was projection of what they themselves were doing and how much was real is is there any kind of balance between the kind of riots and terror that each group did and is it like 90 percent 10 or is it closer to uh, is there any consensus among the historians about that it's wildly out of balance yeah uh we we uh uh we, I see, I see Americans who were educated uh, uh, in, in, over, over several, many generations up until pretty recently, absorbed the idea that that uh, the, the that whites in the South were reacting hmm. to to the to chaos brought on by uh, um, emancipated people, by freed people. That's not so. There was extremely little. Violence perpetrated by by uh, uh, freed men and women, very very rare. And in fact, one of the extraordinary aspects of the period, and one might say of much of American history, is the determination of African Americans uh, to to find a place within the American system to participate in it. Uh, and what what you see during the um, Reconstruction period is not agitation or let's 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 say political confrontation by african americans but rather uh freed people flocking in unbelievable numbers to schools never having been permitted to be educated before and you see people rushing a man women where possible often it schools aren't welcoming women but uh old men uh, grown men children, boys, uh, packing schoolrooms to become literate because they understand that literacy 
is the is the route to citizenship. They want to be citizens. An organization called the Union League, founded in the North, but during Reconstruction, it becomes a kind of um, arm of the Republican Party, new Republican Party in the South, by providing services to uh, free people, among other things. Uh, it helps set up schools, and it also teaches citizenship. Citizenship classes or old meetings where people learn about how the government functions and how citizens uh, participate in government. And these uh, classes are packed by freed people. If you press me to the wall, I hope you, I hope you don't. And mm-hmm. What percentage of yeah. disorder was caused by whites as opposed to blacks? Yeah, it's about 90, 90 plus percent mm-hmm. uh, that's perpetrated by whites against blacks and also against white Republicans, members of the Freedmen's Bureau, who often are military officers. Uh, and they, it, it's, it is, in effect a guerrilla war that's a continuation of the civil war itself. I mean, there's kind of a myth that there was no guerrilla war after the civil war. Well, there was, it was the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. That's what it was. It's membership rose up into the hundreds of thousands. It was not a small movement. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, frail and fragile and scattered. It was, it was enormous. So let's, we have two big issues here to talk about. One, one is the, the fact that a lot of people who were involved seriously in Confederacy, leading the Confederacy, were now disenfranchised, could not vote. Um, they were not allowed to hold office. We did the same thing in Iraq after the Iraq War. Uh, we debathified it, uh, the, the society, and uh, we had that result. You go back in history, you can find all kinds of people on both sides of this issue. What do you do with a group of people that you've just defeated uh, in terms of how do you bring that stability back? And there's a lot of people who argue we were way too lenient to, to former Nazis, even lower level ones who were teacher level and high school teachers and stuff like that. But on balance, as a historian, do you think that this procedure, I know you're, 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 the, the, the politics of the time had all kinds of sides to it, but as a historian, do you think that that was too strong a reaction that that strong reaction led to the Ku Klux Klan or yeah, no. Okay, good. So explain why. Is it answered, George? It's a very good question. And I, I I like uh, your advancing some um, analogies with other countries, although I would be hesitant. I I would be hesitant to uh, push those analogies too far. These are other countries and other times. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, But let's stick with the South at any rate. Uh, no, no, uh, absolutely not. If anything, uh, the, the restrictions against former Confederates should have been stronger. Many more of them made their way into public life than than one might imagine. The number who were actually disenfranchised for years was pretty small. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ultimately, uh, it, it it really boiled down to senior Confederate leadership like Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, and and certain other ones, specifically those who had sworn an oath of allegiance to the United States and then and then betrayed it treasonously by joining the Confederate Army hmm. or or the Confederate government. It's very specific judges for former federal judges, former members of Congress, hmm. and so on. Ultimately, all those people with the virtual single exception of Jefferson Davis uh, would would be re-enfranchised in time, in time. Uh, but uh, 
Andrew Johnson, in fact, uh, uh, issued pardons wholesale, uh, and it was one of the, one of the uh, the 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 uh, uh, problems that uh, Congress, the radical Congress, had with him. He was pardoning so many people so quickly that they were moving back quickly into into public life in the South, enabling people like. Alexander Stevens to actually run for office and be elected. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't by any means the only one. There were many. I thought you would take this position because you you make it very clear that basically as soon as the the broader that got, the broader the the amnesty got, the easier it was to disenfranchise the uh, blacks and to to bring the society back closer to the way it was before without slavery, as you said. And that certainly lasted for 100 years. Yeah, and the impact is exactly. tremendous, and it's not done yet. I mean, it's 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 much less, but there are still eddies and currents that are coming from 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 the same ideas. Yeah, there's no question about it. Yeah. Um, what we what we've been talking about here was very controversial at the time. It was controversial even in the North. There were many Northerners, especially those who were uh, belonged to the Democratic Party. The parties were pretty different. Then, than they are today in their general orientation. The Democratic Party had a populist element, but it was also a reactionary party um, in that it was violently opposed to extending civil rights to black people. Uh, even in the North, Northern Democrats defended the South, uh, played down or, or, or ignored Klan terrorism and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but it was still a potent party. I should say that Democrats of North and South knew they needed each other if they were ever to to win national elections again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Southern Democrats, of course, had become Confederates. Now, gradually after 1865, they're coming back uh, into play as as a as a. Uh, as a political element after being out for several years. Um, and Republicans too are not all of one mind. There are, there are the radical Republicans, which I, whom I've talked about a fair bit. And then there are moderate Republicans who were fairly conservative on many issues um, and oscillate between alliance with the radicals and eventually like Schurz, like Carl Schurz mm. move closer and closer towards an alliance with the Democrats. Mm. Um, so this is, this is a, a, I, I don't want to uh, use a hackney term for a second time. This is, there's political trench warfare. Yeah. Over this in Congress. All right. So, and the other big issue that I was thinking of was education. You talked about how, strongly and enthusiastically the blacks went for education immediately uh, upon their release from slavery. And, um, you know, a little bit later, uh, after a lot of the terror, there was a certain amount of interest in moving someplace else. Uh, You know, there was an interest on the part of Grant, the Santo Domingo project, but there was the librarian project. There were other projects nobody moved. You you can never move 4 million people almost uh, anyway. So it was, a dream. But in any case, the education, I found very interesting that you, that you mentioned that 
the Ku Klux Klan, that was one of their big issues, was we don't want those people educated and we don't want to pay taxes to educate them. That's like paying taxes to cut our own throats because this isn't what we want. We want to keep it. And it, it's, it's interesting that today there's still a, an anti-education element. It's totally different, but not completely. You know, I mean, totally is not the right word. It's, it's different, but there's, there's, you still hear elements of society say people shouldn't get a higher education or it's not for everybody, you know, that kind of coded language. Yeah, you know, anti-intellectualism is nothing new in American society, mm-hmm. sad to say. You know, a suspicion of the overly educated, which seems today to be in some sectors percolating down to a suspicion of the educated at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, during the Reconstruction period, uh, the, the Klan spe- specifically targeted, uh, specifically targeted black schoolhouses, among other mm-hmm. among other things. Uh, and by the way, when I refer to the Klan as a terrorist organization, uh, I mean it practiced terror in the same way that any present day organization in another country you think of as terrorist practiced it. Yeah. They perpetrated any kind of crime imaginable against free people. Barbaric in many cases. Yeah. Barbaric, sadistic, mass killing, individual killing, and so on. But uh, along with that, they also almost everywhere targeted schoolhouses that had been built for African Americans, typically either by the Freedmen's Bureau, federal government that is, or by uh, northern churches or other groups. Uh, that were financing schools to serve this this tremendous craving for education and literacy. Uh, white Southerners, and when I say white Southerners, I'm speaking here about uh, reactionary white Southerners. There were white Southern Unionists who allied themselves in the Republican Party with African Americans. Maybe I sh- maybe maybe I should underscore this: hmm. the Republican Party during Reconstruction, especially in its early years, was a biracial party was the first biracial political party in America. Uh, 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 it was a majority black party, but with a substantial number of white members as well cooperating. And uh, you can see in that moment the possibility of a much healthier, politically much healthier America that was ready to develop, that was ready to develop that was already breaking down racial barriers because working class white people and black people saw their common interest. Um, That's why the Klan wanted to destroy the Republican Party in the South and the two-party system. But white reactionaries uh, feared, of course they feared, uh, educated black people who... uh, would would participate in all those parts of life that they'd been excluded from. Uh, they would be able to um, uh, learn modern ag- agricultural methods. They would learn business. They they would become even wealthy, as some did, as some did, mm-hmm. relative to the time. Uh, wealthy. They would hold political office. And I should say here that a great many African Americans did make their way into political office during Reconstruction. Uh, those give us some of those numbers because I think I mean I was aware of that before, but but uh, only because I've studied it a little bit. But there's uh, there were a large number of people who won election 
more locally than nationally, but even nationally, and, and maybe just some of the statistics uh, of how many African American you know citizens held local, state, and national office at that time, or senator, etc. And then, of course, uh, it all got reversed and disappeared. So people don't know that that exists usually. Yeah, uh, in all, there were approximately two thousand mm-hmm. uh, black men who held office in the South. Uh, bear in mind that government everywhere was much smaller than, right. than it is today. I mean, we see government as a, on every level, as large with bureaucracy. These bureaucracies didn't exist then, hmm. and so on. So 2000 was really a significant number in the 1860s, but spread over quite a few states, uh, 11 former Confederate states. Hmm. Uh, many, uh, many people held local office as well, federally appointed postmasters, locally elected town, town councilmen, city councilmen, uh, county officials, uh, uh, members of state government, uh, uh, state legislatures, uh, state senates. Uh, one African-American uh, uh, was a U.S. senator during that period, but quite a few were members of Congress mm-hmm. uh, who were elected in free free elections. Mm-hmm. Free elections. They were not forced on anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's very interesting how quickly uh, uh, former slaves took to electoral politics uh, uh, for people who had been de- denied any political role forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, they very quickly uh, uh, adapted to the system. And, uh, and, and put the lie to the idea that they couldn't do it, which is which the problem. Is, yeah. <laughs> they demonstrated exactly what what reactionary whites were afraid of. Yeah. So why don't we now? Why don't we talk about the? So there was a lot of negative reaction uh, among whites, but uh, how did the Ku Klux Klan was not the first? But tell the kind of comic start to it, and then and then how it got big and how fast it got big, and a little bit about Nathan Bedford Forrest, probably. Uh. Well, let, let me say at the outset that there were three iterations of the Klan, mm-hmm. okay? My book is about the first, the original iteration of the Klan. The, uh, the Klan would be destroyed uh, by Ulysses Grant um, uh, 18, by 1873-74. Mm-hmm. Um, the Klan did not exist as an organization, again, until the 20th century, it's probably the only uh, terrorist organization anywhere that was ever uh, inspired by a, by a movie. Uh, that's the yeah. uh, the it is brilliant, the brilliant, terrible movie *Birth of a Nation*, made in 1915, shown by Woodrow Wilson, a Southerner, by the way, mm-hmm. raised in raised in Georgia and South Carolina, not New Jersey, as many people think. Mm-hmm. Um, showed it in the White House and praised it, and. Uh, it heroized the Klan. It, it fed the, the, the myth of, 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 of um, Southern heroes struggling to protect their, their, their women folk and so on. It's a lot of rubbish. Uh, fascinating movie, nonetheless. And based on that, a new Klan was developed, which was, became a national Klan, which probably had more members in the North than in the South. That... that uh, imploded at the end of the 1920s because it was totally corrupt. 
and it, it, it collapsed of its own. In, its own internal corruption, corruption financial corruption, okay. stuff like that. So yes. it had nothing to do with uh, the corruption of its ideas. Just yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, no, the ideas were corrupt to begin with. But, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, financial corruption. Yeah. Uh, it was a profit making enterprise. Yeah. Okay. The third clan developed after World War II and was very fragmented, but uh, there were different clans, but it, it developed in reaction to the civil rights movement. Okay. Right. So we're talking about the original clan. Uh, how did it come to be? Its its beginnings are very well known. They're very well documented. Early members recorded beginnings and very rather proudly. It was founded in a uh, very small city, say maybe a very large town or small city, Pulaski, Tennessee, which is about 80 miles south of Nashville. Uh, very pleasant town if you go there today. Um uh, uh but at any rate, it was founded by a small group, half a dozen former Confederate soldiers, uh, all of them college educated, which is significant because Klan leadership in those days was always elite. It was always elite. Primarily educated men, landowners, lawyers, doctors, journalists, ministers, and so on, business people. Uh, these weren't uh, ignorant louts who didn't know what they were getting into. Anyway, mm-hmm. so... 1866, this bunch of young guys got together in this pretty, this half-demolished southern southern town, and they created this, this kind of wacky organization with this wacky name. Ku Klux Klan doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean anything. The words are made up. They were made up to sound strange and, and, and spooky. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and initially, it was kind of a uh, a kind of nutty fraternity of these young guys who would uh, who would pop up in weird costumes around town, playing banjos and guitars, singing singing funny songs and things like that. Uh, but they also had they 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 would do anything that they found entertaining and. Uh, one thing quite ugly that they found entertaining was scaring black people who were about 50% of the local population. Uh, they weren't at that point doing physical harm to anyone, but they were they were pulling antics that were kind of weird and spooky and frightening. Um, so in about six, in the course of about six months, this this strange fraternity kind of metastasized in the neighboring counties of Tennessee, high, former high-ranking Confederate officers took note of it. They met in Nashville, and they, in the spring of 1867, they sat down and, and laid out the plan for the terrorist organization that we know as the Ku Klux Klan. And it was intended from that point on as a terrorist organization with the political goal of destroying the Republican Party, in the South, scaring uh, newly empowered uh, African-Americans out of public life and back uh, into servitude as much as possible. Uh, One of those men, or those high-ranking officers, Nathan Bedford Forrest, he's quite famous even today among people who are interested in Civil War history. He's famous primarily as a brilliant, and he was brilliant, 
cavalry, Southern cavalry commander during the war. Uh, um, he, in the course of his war, however, he also perpetrated the worst war crime on American soil, apart from the, Indi- uh, the Indian Wars, which was the massacre, the massacre of a black Union garrison in 1864. What did he do before the war? He was a very wealthy slave trader. He made a fortune trading, buying, and selling human beings. Confederate general, war criminal. After the war, his wealth is gone because it was all in slaves. Uh, and now recruited as the first grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, he didn't found it. There are people who uh, believed that he was the founder. He wasn't. But he was recruited early on. He was famous. He was charismatic. He was ruthless. And he had the ability to 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 teach uh, uh, these post-Confederate Klansmen how to wage guerrilla war, because that's how he used his cavalry during the war. And I'm I believe that he primarily traveled around the South. He had a cover job working for an insurance company, allegedly. Well, uh, 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 traveling around the South and wherever he went, new dens, as they were called, or new clans, small K, uh, were set up. And as soon as new clans appeared, new dens appeared, violence followed soon afterward. Um, I thought, I think rather that he taught uh the the clans that he organized had 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 to fight like cavalry. The only big difference, and it's a very big difference, is that the clan was never fighting troops. Mm-hmm. It was fighting helpless, usually unarmed civilians, often just women and children. Uh, there were men trapped, families trapped in their in their cabins or cottages, uh, in isolated settlements, uh, and uh, uh, it was deeply, deeply cowardly uh, because its targets were were, were helpless. Uh, later on, which we may talk about, uh, when Grant dispatched the 7th Cavalry into the South to confront the Klan, um, the, the Klan folded when they were faced with, with real soldiers, veteran soldiers armed with carbines. Mm-hmm. The, Klan, the Klan folded. Um, so at any rate, it, it rapidly becomes a terrorist organization, 1867, 1868. It spreads across the South into nearly all the former Confederate states. Uh, and wherever freed people and white Republicans are building a new, more democratic, small-D democratic uh, society, um, the Klan attacks. They knew what they were doing right from the start, as you said, in Nashville, not not from the uh, the sort of unorganized start. But once they did it in Nashville, because they among the things that the people had to sign was that they would never testify in court against anyone for any any outrageous thing that they had done. I mean, they, they knew that they were about to break the law. It's a, it's an interesting thing because whenever they gave testimony later on, they, they all said, oh, white Southern gentlemen would never behave this way. Right. And then they try to blame it all on, you know, say, poor whites who got out of control or something like that. But it was the discrepancy between their statement and their knowledge of that they were doing that was, was extreme. So um, I, I, that was a great part of your book. So um, 
this this group being destroyed by Grant, as you said, cowardly, um, it, it took a long time politically to get to the place, to get Grant to the place, and then to get other people sufficiently to the place. But one person was very effective. Why don't we talk about him? Uh, uh, Lewis Merrill. Yeah, um, Lewis Merrill is a fascinating individual. I write about him at great length in the book. Uh, Merrill was a major in the in the Seventh Cavalry. Yes, by the way, the Seventh Cavalry. It's the same unit that that was commanded by George Armstrong Custer, and it would be demolished at the Battle of the Little Bighorn in eighteen seventy six. And some of these same soldiers who were fighting the Klan in the South would wind up dead at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. But that's that's off point here. But it's a mm. It's an interesting irony. Yeah, I wish we could talk a little bit more about it because we'll just make the comment as we were discussing before that the fact that so many Southern uh, soldiers and everything ended up out in the West fighting the Indians after they stopped fighting the blacks or couldn't fight the blacks or whatever. So they uh, just a fascinating American culture undercurrent that spread to other locations caused damage there, too. So uh, let's go back to to uh, Lewis Merrill. Lewis Merrill. He's only he's only in his late 30s by this point in 1871 when he is dispatched uh, by Grant into South Carolina. South Carolina becomes the spear point of Grant's campaign against the uh, against the Klan because the the Klan had organized very intensely there. The violence was extreme, um, and the population of, of the population of blacks was very high. It was a majority, right? Uh, in well, Not in, in the state, in in those counties, the the Klan uh, was most active in in, in areas by, by county where the population was just about evenly divided between blacks and whites, mm-hmm. where therefore power was in the balance, mm-hmm. um, uh, where the population was very heavily black. There was no fertile ground for the Klan to to thrive. Where the population was very heavily white, it wasn't necessary because mm-hmm. the whites still pretty much controlled everything. So let me let me come back to Lewis yeah. Merrill uh, because you see he's so interesting. Uh, he uh, was a West Pointer. He was from uh, Pennsylvania. He was an abolitionist, which was pretty rare in the officer ranks of of the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he had during during the Civil War had a very successful career uh, fighting and and defeating Confederate guerrillas in in Missouri. So he was very experienced dealing with guerrilla forces, and he completely understood that they could only been, be defeated by cavalry. Mm-hmm. Clan were mounted, infantry can't catch guys on horses. Pretty basic, actually. Yep. Um, and. Uh, uh, Merrill also uh, was trained in the law. So he had a very interesting combination of, of abilities here. Um, uh, he knew what was legally possible, and he never, never crossed the line into illegal repression. Um, uh, so he never gave the reactionaries uh, anything that they, that they could say was illegal. Um, at any rate, he was dispatched to uh, to upcountry South Carolina. Uh, he he, in the course of several months, pen- completely penetrated the Klan with spies. 
both he managed to pick off defectors from the clan who would who gave him insights and who who was who the members were how it worked on the inside uh how they operated and he also penetrated it and this is quite interesting with black spies how could black spies penetrate the ku klux klan um because in two ways one because of the large number of black working people, all whites who were members of the Klan employed uh, work or black workers to do something or other. But they never, they never believed that the blacks were smart enough to pay attention to what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, 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 black workers collected an immense amount of information uh, about Klansmen. Uh, the other way in which... Uh, uh, Blacks were able to become spies. This is dark and it's 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 quite tragic. Is that uh, blacks were co-opted some by the Klan? They were forced sometimes to ride with the Klan. One to protect their own families. Uh, two because uh, white Klansmen uh, uh, found it expedient sometimes to have some of the crimes actually perpetrated by. Blacks who were forced to do so. Um, this is very, uh, uh, this is very dark, but it, but it's there. And, and I should say, by the way, how do we know so much about about the about the Klan? What, you know, where did my own research come from? Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to dwell on this at length, but I do want to mention one thing in particular. Uh, in 1871 and 72, the federal government created a joint committee. Congressional Committee, to investigate the Klan's crimes. And that committee, dominated by Republicans, happily, uh, traveled all over the South in in subcommittees and took an immense amount of testimony from people all over the South, including testimony from freed people who were victims of the Klan. It's the first uh, federal investigation that took testimony from Black people. It took testimony from women. It was the first congressional investigation that took testimony from women to landmark mm-hmm. uh, hundreds and hundreds of people. And uh, they, they also they also took testimony from people who were obviously Klansmen and denied it mm-hmm. or were collaborators with the Klan in one way or another and tended to deny that. So it, there's a, just a wealth of material in there, 13 volumes, 6,000 pages of testimony. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it's all it's all available online. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so uh, it, uh, Merrill, uh, Lewis Merrill's own testimony is very, very potent within that investigation as well, as are the reports that he sent back to Washington. He was a great writer, along with everything else. So he, and there was uh, another there, uh, there was another federal first besides the one you, you just mentioned. You mentioned it in your book, which was that. that this to enforce the 15th Amendment uh, federally in the states was also the first time the federal kind of went over the states when the, they knew that the states were not, not going to respect the rights. And there were a lot of people, of course, who were very upset that America was in the situation where they weren't even protecting their own citizens. Um, and the details, as you say, are very dark um, and, and they're in, in great number in your book, um, uh, very well laid out uh, without being in any way um, attempting to be, to be uh, 
argumentative about it or, or, or you know, just, just laying out the facts. Um, so, but we have a lot of questions that have come in uh, from our audience, and we don't have a lot of time left, so I want I to get to those now. And there's, there's so much more information in the book and where it goes, because um, I guess before we should at least say that, that uh, 1872, Grant was reelected 1870, by 1874 through Lewis Merrill and these other works and trying to enforce the 15th Amendment they succeeded in breaking the back and uh, and the uh, uh, Tilden Hayes election in 1876 with all of its strange politics was just the, the denouement, the anticlimax, as you called it, which I found fascinating. It's a very interesting way of looking at it. So here are some of the questions. Uh, during your research for this book, was there something that surprised or shocked you? I should say, was there something that didn't surprise and shock you? No, <laughs> you already are a historian. So is there anything in particular that shocked you the most? Okay, I'll try to answer that succinctly. Mm. It entered different ways. The extreme barbarism of the Klan it just boggles the mind. Mm. And as I said before, uh, fleetingly, um, thing acts of violence that were perpetrated against people, against women, sometimes children, the murder of children, the sexual violence against women, uh, uh, the the pornographic violence committed against men. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, look, uh, I mean, those are, we, we've all been exposed to uh, horrors in, 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 in events that have occurred in other countries. Uh, these are Americans, middle-class Americans, many of them, establish, uh, uh, local elites and so on, perpetrating the most unspeakable crimes against fellow human beings, uh, mostly African-American by far, but also against white uh, Republicans as well, mm-hmm. who, are, who are standing up for equal rights. I, I say at the, end of, at the end of the book that one of the lessons to be drawn from the history of, of the Klan War or the Ku Klux Klan actions are that the line between civilization and barbarism can be pretty thin. Mm-hmm. And and we are fooling ourselves if we imagine that Americans are not capable of 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 perpetrating atrocities that we perhaps would like to imagine really only happen in other other countries or are perpetrated by a few bad apples in the barrel. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of Klansmen were not a, a barrel with a couple of bad apples. Yeah, yeah, it is, it's it's a. Shocking, but it's also a good reminder of, of why we need to keep our institutions uh, strong and uh, what what they're uh, resisting. And it, and it and I think it's also important to remember that this was a, a chaos day. One of the things that Lewis Merrill mentioned that we, we discussed before we started talking uh, publicly was that Lewis Merrill mentioned that he thought one of the causes was that the young men from the good families who were now in their late teens and 20s, many of them were, were doing some of the atrocities, uh, they they seem to not have a feeling for civil society and maybe being brought up during the coming of manhood during the, the civil war and the chaos of the war contributed to. Now, we, our psychologists talk a lot about oh, what's the pandemic going to do for making people antisocial later on of that generation. And it, it, the whole generation never does that. But there, you can see the strain of different uh, influences on people. Um, and that maybe that's one of the things we should think about in, in the case of a war. That if you is the war really necessary? 
is it so necessary that you're willing to disrupt things that much that you're going to cause that problem for the long term? So uh, here's a good question. Did the anti-Catholic stuff come later to the Ku Klux Klan, or were they there from the outset? You, you answer that in your book, so that's great. Uh, yeah, there, there, there was no anti-Catholicism, or for that matter, anti-Semitism in the uh, original Klan. Uh, that, that was a product of the second Klan uh, during the 1920s in particular. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, not, not at all in the first Klan, which was, as I've said, targeted African-Americans and, and white Republicans. If you had the opportunity to ask President Grant a question... What would it be? Good question. Well, I'd like to meet uh, President Grant. I, I, uh, I, I've written quite a bit about him at this point, and, and my admiration for him as a, as a man uh, has, has just steadily increased. Uh, as a president, he uh, was somewhere in the average or better, slightly better than average uh, range, mm-hmm. and very, very good on civil rights uh, he wasn't so great at at at, at, at in his uh, uh, choice of advisors sometimes. Yeah. Um, uh, well, the question I would ask him is: there, there are many actually, but uh, how did he feel about having to uh, let go of the war against the Klan, which he was committed to and believed in? Because because the complexion of Congress changed, 1874 is the real end of of political reconstruction. So it's 74 when the Republicans lost control of the House of Representatives, where money bills originate, and uh, Congress was no longer going to uh, going to appropriate money for the Klan War or for prosecutions of Klansmen. And how did it feel? He was a very sensitive man. Mm. Man. He, he was not a hard man at all uh, for and remark quite remarkable for a, for a military man. But uh, how how did he feel about it? He he uh, one can. You read his you read his memoirs. He doesn't say much about it or his letters. And he he uh, there's regret there. But I know he had a lot more to say than he put on paper. Part of the fascinating part about your book is is the fact that. He, he, he finally got a plan that would work. He used the federal government to do it. They got the testimony. They brought the trials. And even then, almost nobody got punished. Some people did, yes, but not very much. And before they could go to the next thousand, and the next thousand, this new Congress came in. The whole thing got shut down. So in a way, he destroyed the Klan, but the Southern whites... Uh, were able to take back control of their whole society and and make the laws that kept not people in slavery, but kept them in a subservient position for the next hundred years, basically. Um, uh, and and so both sides had wins. And and you say one of the one, in your preface, you say one of the great things about learning this is knowing what resolute behavior and strength on the part of the federal government can do to stop a total outrage. And a a proviso might be, but cannot stop an entire society from doing what it wants, in a way. You know, you can't stop the entire population, but you can stop the outrages. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, George, uh, you're you're, you're right, you're right. Although I think, um, uh, you know, 
in my view, the the real culpability, political culp- culpability, for for um, uh, short circuiting the full prosecution of Klansmen and so on, lies with Northerners, Northern voters who who stopped electing radical Republicans to office and began uh, voting for conciliatory uh, Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, and Northern voters abandoned Reconstruction. Uh, the army didn't fail at it. Grant didn't fail at it. Mm-hmm. It was voters. Right. You, you say they just had gotten tired of the whole issue in, in one, one way. I mean, we've seen that happen lots of times uh, with voters. Uh, and you, it wasn't for lack of that the newspapers didn't cover the atrocities because they, they covered it. And just like, you know, it reminded me of, say, uh, uh, in the Selma Bridge uh, thing with the, with the uh, dogs attacking children and stuff like that. Those images were enough to get everybody going for a while, you know, or the Malay massacre in Vietnam, those kind of things. But, but people's minds move on. And, uh, and, and it's hard to get them to focus that this is the most important thing for our society for the next 10 years, or we're going to have a problem for the next 200 years. Um, it's a hard thing to, I mean, people, climate change is like that. You know, you, you can't get people to keep focusing on it because it's, it's such a long-term problem. Um, but in any case, we still need to have the right history and we have to, have to know the facts so that if we have a chance to learn, we can learn from what really happened. It was great that you keep adding to that pile of information for us. So thanks again, and uh, thanks for coming and joining us today. Uh, So ends another event of the Commonwealth Club in its 121st year of enlightened discussion. Thanks a lot, folks. Looking forward to the next one. Thank you, George, and thank you to the audience out there today. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.